it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Raj Gopalan, 
Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg. Explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG guys. Hello, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey of brands and retailers. I'm your co-host, PVSB, and when I'm not podcasting, I'm the Partnership Acceleration Lead at Flywheel Digital. I'm joined by my dear friend and co-founder of the CPG Guys podcast. I affectionately refer to him as the Wizard of Woodland Hills. Of course, I'm talking about my BFF, my ride or die, the man known as Shri. Shri, what's going on, man? Hello, Peter. Spring is in the air. Minnesota had 85-degree weather today. How about that? And uh, baseball season is in full swing. We're 13 games in. Dodgers and Yankees about evenly placed. Waiting for the All-Star game like last year. You guys have a bit of a challenge there. I think it looks like in the American League East, everybody other than the Tampa Bay Rays are playing for second place. Uh, they're, They're coming out of the gate pretty fast and furious right now. But, hey, it's a long season, right? Who knows what's going to happen? But uh, I'll tell you, Shri, it was pretty uh, pretty warm for me as well here on the East Coast this week. Uh, the season started to turn it when I was uh, at the baseball game in Baltimore on Tuesday night. It was uh, pretty warm and people had shorts on. So uh, spring has sprung. We're getting ready to get into the warm season here on the East Coast. Uh, As always, thanks for joining me, Shree. And before we get to our guests, I want to remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com, where you can find links to our podcast on all the major and minor podcast platforms. And if you're not already doing so, please follow us on LinkedIn, where we publish new content each and every day of the week, even on the weekends. That's where 21,000 plus followers find all of our content. Of course, we're also very, very proud to sponsor Next Up, formerly known as Network of Executive Women, whose mission it is to advance all women in business and to promote gender equality in the workplace. As supporter-level sponsors of Next Up, the CPG guys are afforded 50 memberships, which Brian, Shree, and I are looking to allocate to female entrepreneurs or women working at companies that are not currently partnering with Next Up. If you want to avail yourself of a membership with all the networking resources and educational resources, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com. We can talk about uh, making one of these memberships available to you. The digital liner notes of this episode contain hyperlinks to the CPG Guys site, our LinkedIn page, and of course, our landing page on Next Up's site. So, Shri, Without any further ado, why don't you say the magic words for us? I'm going to avoid copyright infringement, and I'm going to switch to let's go CPG guys. <laughs> okay, there you go. That sounds like a plan. Thanks, Shri. Uh, innovation is the lifeblood of growth in the CPG retail ecosystem. If you've ever walked the show floor at Expo West, the natural foods industry's preeminent trade show, you would understand this. Whether a company starts as digitally native, direct-to-consumer brand, or it begins the journey in physical retail, potential is often determined by the amount of available capital to invest against the growth of a brand in terms of product development, go-to-market strategy, and, of course, supply chain performance. 2022 saw a dramatic shift in the markets for available capital. The access to venture capital and private equity for early-stage companies virtually disappeared, making it exceedingly challenging for nascent brands to fund the journey through these mechanisms. We are fortunate to have with us today two venture capitalists whose firm is squarely focused on building out early-stage, better-for-you food brands through a combination of funding, 
and industry relationships and groceries. Simple Food Ventures is an early-stage, mission-driven venture capital firm investing in the future of healthy foods and products by targeting the next generation of food, beverage, and CPG companies. SFV claims to stand out against other emerging food-focused firms in the market because of its network and experience in grocery. Here to talk with us about the current state of early-stage venture funding in the Better For You food segment are managing partners of Simple Food Ventures. Please join Shri and me in welcoming to the podcast, Greer, Tesler, and Luke Goldstein. Greer, Luke, welcome. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Doing well. Thanks for having us. Oh, we're very excited to have both of you. We're excited to be here. And I have to say the the spring weather in New York is like summer right now, but it's supposed to drop again. So you can't get too excited because it's just jumping the gun. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't taken the down comforter off the bed. I'm not that adventurous yet, Greer, but yeah, absolutely. No, I totally understand. Hey, uh, thanks for joining us today. I should mention, uh, Greer, you and I were introduced through uh, my dear friend, Stu Elman at RRE Ventures. Stu is the uh, godfather to my daughter. I'm the godfather to his kids. So uh, we've known each other since the age of 18, and I'm really happy to have you here today to speak uh, with you both about how innovation growth uh, is occurring in a very challenging economy. Before we get to the detailed questions that Shri and I have prepared for you today, it would be great, Greer, if you gave us a brief overview of Simple Food Ventures. Sure. So Simple Foods started as an early stage venture fund investing in consumer goods and you know healthier, better for you products. And what we do is we help brands scale through retail and specifically Albertsons. Um, so I've had a decade long career actually working with Albertsons and was able to leverage that when I was starting the fund to take my connections and help brands um, really enter retail and then be successful once they go in. So to date, we've worked in a way where we invest in brands, help them secure distribution through the merchandising team, and then earn additional equity for our services. So that it benefits to the fund is the direct result of the benefit we add to the brands. And as we become more acquainted with the process, we've realized that there's a much larger number of brands who could benefit from our services than we can realistically invest in. So we've started to build out actually a brokerage arm to the business underneath the firm as well, so that we can provide sell-through services in addition to placement. And I think the vision overall for Simple Food one day is to have a retail-focused fund that helps and provides direct retail and brokerage services to our companies. Thank you, Greer, for that summary. That's a really fascinating approach, having that relationship with merchandising and Albertson Safeway to help uh, these nascent brands get physical distribution uh, in exchange for your services and the the equity is rather innovative. So uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit. Uh, in the digital liner notes of this episode, we're going to place a link to each of your LinkedIn profiles, your firm's LinkedIn page, and of course, your company site. That way, people who are listening, like 90 plus percent of people who listen to this podcast episode will do so on their mobile device. While they're listening, they can just toggle over, click a hyperlink. They can learn all about you. Uh, as they're listening along in the episode. So with, without any further ado, we'll, uh, we'll get to the questions we've prepared. I'm going to kick it off. And I'll state that, you know, you guys um, have pretty fascinating backgrounds. Greer, let's start with you. Um, would you please walk us through some of the pivotal experiences uh, in your professional career that led you to founding this firm? Sure. And I think what's so interesting about Simple Food is that 
didn't come into venture capital through the typical, you know, finance background. Um, and so it gives us a different outlook and perspective when it comes to investing and advising. So my relationship with Albertsons was one of the more pivotal moments of this fund overall, because it's really the basis for it. So while at MediaLink, which is a consulting firm, I was on a small diligence team working on the merger between Albertsons and Safeway. And so I spent five years actually working on a variety of different projects for the new Albertsons companies, all centered around marketing and strategy. And this was really my first exposure into the world of grocery and where I made a bulk of my connections through Albertsons. Um, a few years later, after the first half of 2020, I left a job and started working with the former CMO of Albertsons and two founding partners of Impact Brokerage Group to work on a venture capital and brand accelerator concept called Noun. And there's where I got my first exposure into true VC and food investing. And I spent a couple of months being a venture partner there and then decided that, you know, it was time for me to kind of go off on my own. So speaking with a mentor and advisor of mine, Bobby Brown, who is also an advisor for our fund now, um, she really encouraged me to start my own fund. And so in June of 2020, I saw that there was this massive white space in grocery and saw that I could really provide value to brands and stand out in the space by bringing grocery into my process. Um, so at that point, Simple Food Ventures was born as more of a pilot fund, testing out the concept of actually investing in brands and then charging them for additional equity for actually helping them go into grocery. A year after that, I met my partner, Luke, and we really started to evolve the fund into what is today. Thanks, Greer. Hey, Luke, how about you? Yeah. Um, when Greer first approached me, I think the most compelling an exciting aspect of Simple Foods was this huge white space for emerging brands and grocery. Um, you know, I think you look at the space over the past five or 10 years and you see this abundance of new consumer activity, and it's largely based in e-commerce and natural specialty. And yet you have this massive grocery segment that is relatively untouched. You know, I know, you know, you go into a, a mass grocery store today, like you'll see some new incumbents and some better for you brands, but large in part, like, it's a lot of outdated legacy product. Um, and typically when you're thinking of better for you products, you're thinking about Whole Foods and Sprouts and Erewhon. And, you know, for the most part, that's the case. Um, but when you look at Albertsons, you know, it, it did nearly 70 billion in revenue last year. That's the same size as Facebook and Tesla. It's nearly two times the size of American Airlines. So, you know, you look at Kroger, Kroger did 130 billion in revenue last year. If they end up merging, it'll be a fortune 10 company. So there's this massive volume and this huge industry and all of this opportunity for new brands to sort of penetrate and scale. Um, and it feels relatively untapped. So for me, when I met Greer, aside from, you know, loving Greer and loving working with Greer, it just felt like such a compelling opportunity. Staying on the topic of compelling, food has obviously been around decades in a grocery store. The grocery format has been around over a century at this point and scaled over the last 50 years. So you mentioned legacy products. Greer, what are those assumptions in the food and nutrition space that you're looking to address for the consumer? And then how do you go about your investment strategy to get there? So I think the most important assumption that we're really trying to change is that healthy doesn't have to mean premium and niche. 
you know, consumers are shifting to healthier lifestyles as we're getting more transparency into actually what we're putting into our bodies, what it does to our bodies, and also what it does to the world around us. And I think a larger brands and a lot of smaller brands are realizing that. And by the brands making it easier to find and eat better options for consumers, the quicker the adoption. So we are strategically identifying companies that are creating healthier, more natural versions of these conventional food staples. So you think about like cereal or pantry items, snack items, and we've seen that better for you brands can actually offer accessible price points and unlock sizable market opportunities with it still really unrivaled arena in the mass market. And so it's a great investment opportunity. Yeah, I also think, you know, to echo what Greer said, better for you products, they have an opportunity in mass market, right? They can have mass market appeal. And I think as the consumer industry has evolved, especially over the past decade, you've seen all of this innovation in the inputs to supply and the ability to supply products at, you know, reasonable price points without jeopardizing contribution margin is just getting greater and greater. So I would say our, our biggest area of focus are on products with large TAMs um, and that have a better for you ingredient profile that's not jeopardizing profitability. Now, we have a rule here uh, on the CBG Guys podcast that whenever we use acronyms, we have to break them down. So you use TAM. Would you explain what TAM? I know what it is, but some of our audience may not. It's always good to use that. You should see me now. I, I thought we were going to be on video, but I have my Simple Foods hat on. I'm used to talking mostly to venture capitalists. But uh, TAM is just total addressable market. So um, the market size that you're appealing to in launching a product. Exactly. Thank you. That's very helpful. And and guys, I couldn't agree more with you uh, with respect to the fact that breaking down these barriers and trying to make better for you healthy foods available to the masses, nothing is a greater indicator of that to me than I think back 20 years when you would go into grocery stores, almost all of them, if they were dealing with better for you or healthy natural foods, they would have a completely separate department. And increasingly, I'm seeing that wall break down, that you are seeing brands that are considered to be healthy, natural, organic, better for you in line with all of the national brands. And that's just indicative of the fact that these retailers are recognizing the fact that these products are desired by everybody and we need to make them available, not hidden away in some corner that you know may have some stigma associated with it. They belong right against all the national brands. So that being said, um, my next question for you, I'll, I'll turn to you, Luke, is what type of companies are you seeking to invest in? Like, what is the criteria that you use to consider a brand for investment and support? You know, I think one differentiating factor for our fund is that we adopt this lens of retail viability into the deals we underwrite. So in addition to the elements of what makes a consumer venture deal financially viable, we're really leaning into what value we can add and how big the appetite is on the side of the retailer. Um, that aside, I think, you know, we're looking for the typical metrics that most early stage VCs do, like venture scalability. You know, is it applicable across multiple channels? Is it appropriate for mass audiences? Like we mentioned before, uh, does it have a cleaner ingredient profile? in a way that doesn't jeopardize profitability. Um, similar to what I think most VC firms are looking for in our space. Um, and also, you know, given today's market conditions, we look at run rate, for, uh, profitability, and 
really have become increasingly important. The story's really shifted from it being about scaling these companies and seeing as big as you can get and not really worrying about runway to making sure that you're being efficient with your dollar. Um, so we actually won't invest in companies that only have a couple of months of runway because our investment dollars aren't going to go very far, you know, where we help is with distribution. And so it's changed our outlook when we come focus on investing now. I think also to that end, you know, more than anything, most early stage investors are really betting on founders. You know, so a lot of times, assuming the rest of the boxes are checked, we're trying to align ourselves with people who we feel have superior vision and really strong managerial prowess. You know, the interesting part is I agree with y'all, or at least my sense says where we are in market conditions today, which is like April 2023. Betting on the strength of a founder alone ain't going to cut it anymore. I think we've all learned a bitter lesson over COVID, to be fair, last two years. I love that y'all are looking at minimum runway. I think you said four months, Greer. Um, Peter and I, in the last few months, have seen amazing companies that were incubated maybe seven, eight years ago, especially in the space of distribution, collapse in front of eyes, great friends of ours. Uh, which really went into this less than four months runway period, try to get new funding and just in this market couldn't find any. So I couldn't agree with you more. So the interesting question that arises to the mind then is, where do you find companies that walk to you and say, hey, I've got more than five months runway, invest in me. Right? I, I can't imagine anyone that has that runway is easy to find. And then once, let's say, they do come to you and you say, hey, this is worth looking at, how do you evaluate the TAM, the total addressable market? And um, how do you feel you can bring that accelerated growth through Albertsons? Yeah, I mean, it's really shifted where it's harder to find companies that have more than four months of runway because typically those companies don't think they need to raise yet. So we've actually kind of slowed down our pace of investing to make sure that we're finding companies that do meet that criteria. But in terms of finding opportunities overall, there's no shortage of companies that come our way. Um, we have a really large network of both founders who either know us and have worked with us or you know, are looking to get into retail um, and other investors who are constantly trading deals with. And so it's really being picky about what we want to invest in and the opportunities that we see in front of us. But for us, our diligence process really comes into play because before we actually invest into a brand, we bring our retail partner into the process. And we introduce the brand to the specific category director of the category and understand if there's potential distribution for the brand at the retailer. Um, if there isn't, we actually won't invest because we want to make sure that we're providing additional value to the brand than outside of just our check. Um, and so it's not something that's commercially viable for mass grocery at the time. Um, and so it just doesn't make sense for us. Yeah, as we've gotten more sophisticated in our retail support, uh, we've been able to dive a little deeper into the implications of scaling through grocery. Let me remind our audience that today we're speaking with Greer Tesler and Luke Goldstein, managing partners at Simple Food Ventures. So that's just really fascinating as we start to think about what type of companies you're going after and, and how you find them. I start to think because, as I mentioned to you, I was introduced to you through uh, Stu Elman. So I've been very familiar with venture capital for the better part of my entire adult life. 
Um, and what I know about venture capital is that oftentimes, uh, you know, you're not operating in a vacuum, that there are other investors. So I'm kind of curious in your particular space, do you typically operate independently uh, as an investor or are you often operating in partnership with other investment partners? And because of your niche, are they often a familiar set? I'd, I'd sure love to hear how this all works out. You know, it really goes both ways. I found that with um, venture investing, when it comes into the consumer space, it's such a collaborative place where investors want to share deal flow at all times. You want smart people on the cap table because that just helps the brand. And so, you know, we're a relatively small firm and we're still deploying out of our first fund, which is really a proof of concept fund. So we're limited on the amount of capital we can actually deploy per deal. So we're never actually leading a deal. But that allows us the opportunity to collaborate with these other strategic investors who we really value. And as we're entering into later stage deals, which Luke was mentioning, um, these later stage companies often have already partnered with institutions and board members who actually really value the, what we're bringing to the table in terms of retail. So they're not only improving of this deal structure that we put into place where we get additional equity for opening up points of distribution, but in some instances, that's how we get into the deal in the first place is they're seeking out our participation because, you know, the brand is really struggling with this specific retailer. So let's say now you've made that investment, you've partnered with existing institutional investors. They love the fact that you're bringing retail distribution in-store, which is how one scales. What are the fundamental resources and capabilities that Simple Food Ventures brings to its portfolio investments to help that particular brand grow in omni-channel retail? Yeah, we help our brands really be successful in grocery. So we strongly believe in D2C and having a good online presence as a way to, for some brands, as a way to increase sales, but for other brands, it's just more so for as an awareness play. Um, but we believe in brick and mortar retail and whether it's opening doors to a key retailer or providing, you know, help with a successful sell through strategy once they actually get on the shelf or just general retail advisory overall to build a retail roadmap, understand, you know, which retailers to go into first and when you're ready to enter into the next phase. We are not only a fund, but like a one stop shop for these brands to grow and survive through grocery. Yeah, I also think like when you look at, we've spoken to so many companies who are like, I want to get into Albertsons, I want to get into Kroger, I want to get into Walmart. And especially as you see this kind of decline in efficiency in e-commerce, there's been this sort of mad rush towards retail. And, you know, when you play it out realistically, it's very nuanced to scale through retail. And there's all of these cost and executional implications that go into it. And so I think Greer and I and the rest of our firm has really honed in on a lot of what those implications are and can help our companies navigate them. Um, a lot of them are financial, but a lot of them are executional too. You know, it's, it's not like you get into 2000 Albertsons locations and that, you know, you wipe your hands clean and the product's flying off the shelf. There's tons that needs to be done in terms of motivating velocities and managing and, and navigating the internal systems of the company. And, um, you know, obviously each retailer has its own sort of process flow. So I think helping our companies be, be laser focused on, you know, both the execution and the financial implications of their growth as it relates to retail is, is sort of a key value add. It's also picking the right retailers at the right time. So, you know, it doesn't make sense for a lot of companies to go national, even if it's a national retailer, because 
they're not setting themselves up for success. It's expensive to pay to play. Most retailers charge slotting fees per store per SKU. So we help our partners be strategic about where their customer is and where we see they're going to do the most in sales. Especially when you're growing on such a thin cash balance, you know, and you're hoping to to produce a venture-like return. The one question that did pop up to my mind is, uh, because you mentioned the importance of the P&L, the P aspect of the P&L, when you may choose to make an investment in a certain food brand, do you coach the CEOs, the CFOs, et cetera, on scaled P&L as you choose to make the investment? I'm, it depends. You know, so it, it depends how, if that brand is later stage, sometimes they want us involved, sometimes they don't. You know, Luke actually goes into some of our brands and serves as like an interim CFO for them, really helping them understand what the brand structure and financial structure needs to look like in order for them to be successful. But I think it's also a big part of our diligence to really assess if the brand is set up for retail success and if they can handle that scale. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more like you look at a detailed contribution margin per retailer. It's, it's just like really important to understand the implications that growth have on your burn. Um, because, you know, if you're facing slotting fees and you're facing an aggressive promo schedule and the retailer is forcing you to allocate a certain percentage of your top line to trade spend in store, you know, it takes a while to turn a profit. And if the growth is voluminous, it can really be impactful on how much you're burning. Um, so I definitely, when we're going into companies and when we're investing and we're advising, you know, it's important to have cash transparency to really be dialed in on what their expectations for growth are um, and how it's going to impact our investment. And, and if, if we think it, it's realistic and, and beneficial for the company to, to engage in that level of growth. What I love hearing from both of you is the fact that in this period where we saw massive e-commerce growth, and that seemed to be the excitement where everyone was going, you clearly recognize that the overwhelming majority of sales are still occurring in brick and mortar. And that's particularly true in food and beverage. Like, particularly in this space, uh, people have not adopted as dramatically as they have with more traditional shelf-stable, durable goods and other things like that. So the fact that you understand that and that you're focused on building brands that will succeed where sales are actually occurring is quite exciting. Uh, I know Shri concurs with me on that. So uh, taking a look at your actual investments today, you have quite a number in your portfolio. Would love for you to share with us a little bit about a few of your brands, what intrigued you about them, and how you've helped them with their growth trajectory. Yeah, I mean, just just to start, we, we, we have 18 companies in our portfolio. Um, like Greer mentioned, it's sort of a proof of concept fund. We're still deploying out of our first fund. So uh, there's definitely a lot of options to talk about. Uh, one that comes to mind for me is Triple Peak, which is a whole co-entity that houses both Crave Jerky and Chef's Cut. Um, both of which are premium jerky brands. I think people may be familiar with them. They have had this really unique uh, rise to power and then sort of fall, and now we're involved in the second resurgence of both brands. But um, both brands under Triple Peak are owned by Sonoma Brands Capital, who typically focuses on growth investments. But we partnered with them to help fortify the distribution at Albertsons. both brands sort of had this rise to success and saw exits around 2015. Uh, and one was sold to 
Kavu Ventures, I believe, one was sold to uh, Hershey and uh, sort of had this fall from grace and Sonoma Brands has picked them back up and is regrowing both of them and we're helping to aid in that growth. And I think it's really representative of what we're trying to do because it's one of these products that has this massive TAM and uh, is applicable to a wide reaching audience and isn't a far fall away from some of the mass products that exist today in terms of pricing, but offer a much cleaner ingredient profile at a you know, at contribution margins that don't jeopardize the health of the business. So we've really liked working with Sonoma. I think they do a really good job, especially on these brands. And we're doing everything we can to help aid in their success at, at Albertsons. And they both make really, really stellar products. And we Greer and actually sit on the board of, of Triple Peak. It's, it's one that's pretty near and dear to our hearts. So we're doing everything we can to help them grow. I do have to say, though, it's very hard to choose. It's like 18 of your children <laughs> getting to pick, you know, but I, I think that we're just trying to talk through some. Who do you love the most, Career? Who do you love the most? Come on. As a, I can't. I'm not supposed to ever say that. But I think, you know, we, we want to talk about the brands that are really representative of our overall portfolio um, as kind of examples of the types of investments that we make. So the next brand is Partake Foods, which is an allergen-free snack brand. Starting with cookies, they've expanded out to um, pancake mixes and pizza crusts. And not only am I the biggest fan as a consumer, if I see a box of Partake cookies somewhere, I'll buy it. No, like before becoming an investor, um, it's clear that the product was really meeting a need in the space where most allergen friendly foods aren't free of all of nine allergens and don't generally taste very good. And Partake is the perfect example of a brand, too, that is a better for you version of a grocery staple. So they are, you know, the founder, Denise Woodward, is also just a really impressive, spectacular person. And so when we got the opportunity to invest, we saw that they really needed help entering into Albertsons. They'd done a really great job with mostly the rest of retail, but hadn't really unlocked that door yet. So we were able to get them into their six target divisions and they're now, you know, growing very rapidly at Albertsons. And so it's a really exciting brand for us, you know, as a consumer and a big fan, but then also as an investor. Another brand that comes to mind for me is Cure Hydration. Cure is a functional powder company making products geared towards hydration and energy. So similar to like a liquid IV, but obviously a much cleaner ingredient profile. Liquid IV actually has like a ton of sugar in it. Um, I don't know if that many people are aware, but uh, it was founded by, by a woman named Lauren Picasso, who's just been an incredible founder to date. We partnered with them going into their Series A and have helped them secure distribution at just under 2,000 check stands across the nation in Albertson. So you can find them as you're checking out um, your grocery purchase. And they've been an incredible team that we've been with from early on, and we're really, really impressed with their growth. I think that, that product's also favorable too, because like you were mentioning this earlier, but you know, not all food and beverage products are meant to sell online. <laughs> Uh, and that not all of the consumer behavior is there for purchasing online, but uh, with functional powders, there's typically a high enough margin profile that they can have this tandem e-commerce business that really supports a lot of their retail growth. 
Um, and the last company that I want to mention is a company that was one of our earlier investments, um, Belly Welly. And so Belly Welly is a low FODMAP, which for people who don't know what low FODMAP is, it is a diet that you're supposed to follow when you suffer from different gut issues. FODMAPs are in a lot, a majority of foods and they end up causing a lot of gut issues for people who have IBS, leaky gut, um, and so it's a low FODMAP dessert bar. Uh, they have multiple different flavors, really targeted initially towards the IBS community, uh, but really anybody can eat it. So we invested in the brand pre-launch, knowing that we don't typically do pre-launch investments, but could see the community that the founder um, or one of the co-founders, Katie Wilson, had really built. She suffers from IBS, and so she actually purchased the IBS Facebook group. So she had this community of like 100,000 followers before she actually launched the brand. And so we were impressed by her. We were impressed by the community that she had built behind it, but also the white space opportunity where low FODMAP is the next gluten-free. And there's only a couple of brands out there that are really investing in and creating products in the space. And they're rarely in the sweet dessert space. So the brand initially launched D2C. They've moved over strategically to um, some lower hanging fruit when it comes to retail, you know, going into Erewhon, Central Market, Thrive. And now they're really ready to hit uh, big box and conventional. And so we've been in the process of helping them go into Albertsons. But they're one of these brands that in their first two years of business have just far and exceeded everybody's expectations and just did a very, very, very successful Series A. That was a, a category play for us. I think, you know, you think about like a new age gluten-free as a category, it's really compelling. You might have recognized, I don't know if anyone saw their billboards around town that say, they, they say hot girls have IBS. So it's, it, they definitely have a lot of marketing power. Um, also, just because they're raising their Series B in the next few months, and he and Paul Vogie's maybe the hardest working founder in CPG, uh, we also invested in Ourobora, which is a sparkling water company that's been growing incredibly quickly and uh it's a really tough category but he is a stellar founder and we've had a really really great time helping them scale and watching that journey but please look at our website because we really love all of our brands and they're all there and they're all worth buying and checking out so Greer, isn't there one child that you love above the other as peter said earlier <laughs> i don't think i can choose <laughs> So what's clear is you, in the food space, you're in multi-categories. You're not in any one category or two, but you're entering many subcategories because you gave examples of mass stage hydration, gut health, as um, well as snacks. So that's, in the, if I think of the center store, you're in many places in the center store. But now comes the magic question. I think we discussed it very briefly up top of this episode. Money is very tight, especially for those that are founding food brands, it's been a return of legacy brands in store, which makes it even more hard to justify. So what happens now? Do you think this market will change after the downturn? And then what are you guys doing to ensure that your ventures, Simple Foods Ventures, will be positioned to continue to help brands grow? You know, it, 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 it's hard to say. I feel like I'm going to say something kind of controversial, but we've just come out of this massive bull market. You know, if you look at the past decade, 
I don't necessarily have the statistics on this, but I feel like there's probably been more consumer activity and new brands than there were, you know, the, the prior 90 years in the past 10 years. So I think like all firms, we're sort of sitting opportunistically on thankfully a fair amount of dry powder and we're waiting to see exactly what the landscape shakes out to be in terms of financial incentives. Uh, one thing that we bank on, I know we mentioned this earlier, is that grocery is an incredibly voluminous industry and it's not going anywhere. And so when you look at you know, the, the need for better for you products in a mass grocery setting, when you look at changing consumer preferences as you know, millennials and Gen Z take over the spending power, you know, I think there's always going to be a need for newer, healthier brands. I think we haven't come close to tapping that potential within grocery. Um, so as we continue to sort of wait opportunistically, we're in a lucky position where we, we have access to aiding companies with something that's in high demand, which is retail scalability. So I think, I think unfortunately, the answer is I don't think anyone really understands exactly what the landscape's going to look like from an investing perspective. But we can sit here with a fair amount of certainty and say our category is not going away. And we're trying to kind of double down on that and provide even more value to our brands versus just placement onto the shelf. We're now offering brokerage services where we can help you with sell through. You know, we can help you with your trade promotion schedules, with actually the data and creating a data story so that you can continue to grow within the store, um, the right shopper marketing approaches. So that as a fund, we really are a place where brands can go to get the capital they need, but then also the actual structure and advisory they need to, to do well within retail. I'd like to remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com. You can find all of our content. Uh, and if you think that your company has some thought leadership to contribute to our community discussion, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com and maybe you can join us on this podcast. Don't forget to drop us a rating on the menu and the navigation bar at the top of cpgguys.com. That way we get feedback. We understand if what we're producing is to your liking and you give us direction as to how we can adjust our content. And of course, to the 21,000 people who follow us on LinkedIn, thank you for your engagement. It means the world to Sheree, Brian, and me. So uh, Greer, Luke, thanks for this really interesting conversation. You know, we we tend to focus a lot on the digital shelf here and about consumer engagement through digital mechanisms. But uh, it's nice to and refreshing for us to be able to talk about how brands can grow and scale through physical retail, particularly nascent brands uh, that don't necessarily have the resources on their own to do it. So it's really refreshing. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate the conversation. Of course. Thank you for having us. This Thanks really for having fun. us. Shree, wow, this was a great episode. We, I know I learned a lot. I'd sure love to hear uh, your thoughts on what uh, transpired in our conversation today. You know, Peter, anytime we're talking about the in-store opportunity to scale, you know both you and I are going to pay a lot of attention. So for me, right up top when Kriya started describing what Simple Food Venture does and Albertsons was in the mix, I kind of said this is going to be a lot of fun. And... Um, Greer, you started up top by saying you didn't come through the classic finance background. In many ways, that's awesome because you're not looking just for a PL, you're looking for viability of the product, market fit, scale with the lens of a founder, which is awesome. And then another thing that you said that I think is very important for young entrepreneurs to listen into is 
the importance of advisors. You gave your own example of Bobby Brown advising you to do this and look all of a sudden now how this is scaling steadily and slowly. Um, then Luke, I think somewhere there you pointed out that healthy doesn't have to be a premium, which is how the industry sees it these days. And then I loved it even further when you connect that back to saying, hey, price point is a focus in how we make investments. And then um, smart to look at retail viability, mass audiences, scaling. You even use the word mastige much later. And then insulating yourself somewhat and also ensuring that you work with brands that have a shot at this because you're looking for four months of viability on the minimum side. And you're sourcing feedback from your retail partners where you're choosing to help distribute these products. And uh, you gave the example of the revenues anywhere between 5 and 30 million. Seems like a sweet spot to help any DDC company or Amazon distribution company kind of get in store and help them scale beyond that 30 million opportunity. But you're also collaborating with existing investors, which is great because they're going to love that now they have a partner who can help put the product in store and scale. Therefore, safe to say you can call yourself a one-stop shop for brands to thrive in grocery. Luke, you do CFO advisory road there by watching over how the PL scales or advice you can bring. And then we wrapped it up with examples of really successful investments in mastige, hydration, snacks, gut health. Overall, fun episode. And uh, I look forward to following your growth. And I also look forward to following all the brands and food you'll choose to uh, bring to the store. Thank you for that summary, Shri, and as always, appreciate you doing this with me week after week to our audience. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We look forward to speaking with you on the next episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Goodbye. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.